Support for Food Friday Leftovers comes from Berkshire Co-op Market, Great Barrington, Massachusetts, a community-owned natural grocery store dedicated to sustainable agriculture, the local economy, and the environment. Working within the community to better Berkshire County, one basket at a time. Berkshire.coop. Welcome to Food Friday Leftovers, a podcast about all the goodies left over from Food Friday. I'm Dave Hopper. And I'm Ashley Kinsey. Tune in each week as we cover culinary topics such as food trucks, local food, pizza, veggies, beer, and wine. You hungry yet? Huh, I'm always hungry. Well, on that note, Ashley, tell us what's in the fridge this week. This week, we've got chicken tikka masala in the fridge. We are here with Anissa Wahid of Tar Kitchen in Schenectady and Troy. And we are also joined by her father, Wahid of Taj Mahal, also in Schenectady, New York. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. And uh, the first question I want to ask has to do with the head chef, a.k.a. mom, right? Can you (laughs) tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, you know, uh, right from... uh, shall I say, marriage, which is almost 45 years ago. My wife has been the main engine in terms of our cuisine at home. The, the birth of our restaurant, Taj Mahal itself, is uh, because she's been the anchor. A- anytime she makes food, uh, not only in our house, but even our neighbors would just invade our house. <laughs> so She's so good in whatever she does in terms of her... Uh, recipes, although she's not like a trained uh, uh, chef, but uh, just by getting, um, b- because of her own talent and her own creativity, and she she also, I would say, is, is, has uh, schooled in the laboratory of life. Where we grew up, we had a lot of elderly people, you know, grown-up people, and she was very, she was a teenager almost when we got married. So they, they would coach her and tell her, and she would seek their advice on how to, because my mother was a pretty demanding mother-in-law. <laughs> so she, she and, and we had a large family, five brothers, we and a sister, and grandparents living with us. So there, there was a lot of demand on making good food all the time. And uh, so she learned in this uh, school of, uh, shall I say, the community school. And and Mm -hmm. each lady I would uh, sometimes overhear giving her some very creative recipes. And she was very quick to learn, adapt. And now she's, uh, you know, even amongst all the restaurants here, when people eat at our restaurant, they say that they'd never tasted food like this. Is it sort of taught, like how she started cooking, and then you have other people at the restaurant, you sort of teach in that same way? Yeah, of, of course, the, recipe, the spices and the uh, ingredients that go into our cooking makes a big difference. So she she has her own uh, unique, uh, creative, and exclusive uh, way of uh, uh, designing, shall I say, this the, the background material. And then, uh, of course, she has a crew that uh, emulates what she does. But think, she's the lead. I think what a lot of people don't realize, if you're not in the restaurant business, is how you cook at home is not how you cook in a restaurant. So mm-hmm. it's a very different way of cooking. and um, But ultimately, the end result is what you, what you want is a home-cooked meal, right? <laughs> yeah. Which is very interesting because uh, when, you tr- when you think about how to do production in a restaurant, you know, like, for example, you need to make chicken tikka masala 
you can't make like you know a batch of 50 orders of chicken tikka masala and put it in a pot and just wait for people to come buy it because <laughs> you lose the freshness and you know mm-hmm. the um, uh, made to order aspect of uh, a restaurant so then you have to figure out well you t- how do you take this recipe which has multiple layers and multiple components and then how do you cook it for one person at a time but in a timely way because if you really think about it Indian food has uh, you know is a very uh, labor-intensive sort of process and has many, many, many ingredients that go into it. So I think what Dad's talking about, and similarly for my restaurant too, is to figure out how to bridge that gap between home-cooked food and then production restaurant food, but then still have that same flavor and love into it is, you know, what she does um, very successfully. What is the biggest difference, cooking in a restaurant and cooking at home? Well, for example, when you're cooking at home, you know, your recipe says saute the onion and then add this, add that, add that and then, you know, 30 minutes later you have a chicken dish. Now you, you walk into a restaurant and you say, I want... Um, We'll use chicken tikka masala. I want chicken tikka masala or chicken preserved lemons in my restaurant. Uh, and you, you're not going to wait 30 minutes, you know, right? From the mm. time you order, most people's expectation is maybe 15, maybe 20. Um, and then if you started to do that from ground zero for every single... So what we have to do in the restaurant is, um, and mo- you know, most restaurants, they have many levels and layers of prep ready. So you might have your sautéed onions ready. You might have your chopped parsley and cilantro ready. And, and then what you have to do is kind of put this puzzle together in a in a pot or a pan to create that one dish but then you on your menu you might have 18 different kinds of chicken well you can't have 18 different (laughs) you know what I mean yeah Um, so then you have to figure out how do you make all these 18 different um, in uh, dishes entrees with just maybe 15 different ingredients so it's very 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 tricky and it's it's how you put all of that stuff together and how you kind of piece this puzzle together that's kind of made-to-order cooking. Hmm. Do you miss doing that now that you're more on the business side, like you mentioned uh, the box pop? Yeah, well, it, when I do, I'll, then I'll just go back to the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> so I have, the, you know you know what I mean? So yeah, I, the have flexibility. The, uh, I, I have a lot of flexibility in how I run my business and a lot of flexibility in how I run even my day. So every single day, um, we kind of decide what's happening and where I need to focus my time and energy on, whether it's on the business side or it's on the floor or it's in the front of the house. So in that way, it's super exciting to be able to kind of have that much flexibility to be able to do that and, you know, dictate your day. So I, I love that aspect of it. Occasionally when she misses, she just calls her mom. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a recipe-based question. A few You were here before, and yeah. I got a sauce, like a, a base, right? Yeah. And so when people are buying the sauces, or even if they're just trying to create the recipes at home, I feel like when you have these pre-made things, when do you use it? Do you use it in the marinade and then or do you use it when the food is cooking or do you use it after the food's been cooked? Or do you, I, is it a combination of everything? Yeah, it depends. 
depends on what sauce you're getting, but most often, so a time, it's they're simmer sauces. Mm. So it should tell you in the name of it, or at least in the direction of it, if it's a simmer sauce. So then the idea is you take the sauce, you simmer it with your ingredients, your protein, your vegetables, or you know your beans and stuff. Um, so most oftentimes they're designed to do that. I mean, but the way that I have designed my sauces is really uh, my particular line is ready to eat out of the jar. So a lot of times, you know, you can make chutneys with them right out of the jar. You you know, take it out, you make some mayo, you use it like a dip, um, or you, you can marinate with them, you can simmer with them, you can, you know, um, add them like a dipping sauce, that kind of stuff. So it really depends on what the intent of the sauce was by the creator, you know. Okay. Um, but if, you, if you're getting like different kind of Indian cooking sauces from the shelf on the market, then I would say most oftentimes they're simmer sauces. Okay. That makes sense. And it'll, it'll probably deepen the flavors more. Um, but I, you know, when I was thinking about my sauce line, I went, I really thought about that very question that you were asking. And I also thought about um, in the past I had used you know, jarred sauces in my kitchen just to see how it kind of works. And what I always found was you have to doctor them. At least I found mm-hmm. that myself, right? You you get the sauce, but you still have to add something to it. And and my whole idea of creating my line was that the mom at home would not have to do that. The idea, right? So mm-hmm. I was very intentional in how we um, how we did our sauce um, because of those very questions that you have. Everyone's talking about fusion now, I would yeah. say. And when Ray talked a little bit about just joking about Moroccan and Indian food. So yeah. you've had your business running for a while and Taj Mahal has been running for a while. Do you think about fusing other diff- foods, like different cultures putting them in? Or is that something you just try and see what well, happens? Well, you know, the very nature of the fact that we're in America eating all this different ethnic food, it that in itself is fusion, right? Uh, because no matter what you do or how you do it, uh, the minute that food leaves its country, it's automatically <laughs> not authentic anymore. In my opinion, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? I think. Um, but we uh, like to think it is anyway. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> those of and, us who are just like, oh, I don't have to have this all the time. It's to me, it's like, oh, this is authentic Moroccan food or authentic Indian absolutely. Food. And I and I think uh, that's okay, but uh, but just the physical fact that you you don't have access to the same kind of ingredients or the same kind of spices or the same you know um, uh, the the level of freshness of say your cilantro, which you know in Schenectady is coming from. Uh, whatever Me- Mexico, Mexico somewhere, <laughs> and it takes like you know eighteen weeks to get here, and it's wine ripened to me. So all those things make a difference, right? Um, so I well, think there is some uh, obviously all people doing ethnic food are trying to achieve some level of authenticity, um, or we would you know uh, we would just be another burger place. But <laughs> yeah, I guess. Uh, but I think it, w- the minute the food leaves its country. It's already started its journey of fusion. <laughs> Does that make sense? Also, the climatic uh, conditions, you know, Indian food, for example, we just uh, earlier spoke about uh, how yogurt plays a big mm-hmm. role in um, the southern part of India. Uh, yogurt is the signature at every meal. Yeah. The last thing that they'll have is yogurt. In some parts of India, they'll always have a dessert uh, after the meal. So based on the conditions and the availability of the raw materials, that's the authenticity of the food there. Now, when we are importing it, as Anissa says, to the U.S., you know, we have lost one of the main factors uh, of the cuisine, 
climate. You know, so automatically now there's a fusion with the food and the climate here. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at it in a larger and a global sense, so we are adapting our Indian cuisine or the Moroccan cuisine to the climate in America. So we we do not have this kind of uh, intense uh, severe winter that we have in northeast in many parts of India, except the northern part. You know, so therefore the the fusion is already taking place. Yeah, and I and I think if the I don't really know what this word fusion is or where how it originated but i feel like you know experimenting with food and creating something new um that's really how like there'll be progress and growth in food right so um when i take a, 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 an ingredient like preserved lemon and then make um a pita pizza with it now would you consider that fusion and i don't think i was thinking of that as fusion i was thinking of that more as a vehicle to bring a very authentic ingredient into the market here right i mean every person i think 300 million people in america love pizza yes uh, i'm one of them <laughs> <laughs> uh and that was a very um almost benign way for me to introduce an ingredient into the space uh it's like how could you be afraid of pizza you know what i <laughs> yeah. mean um so do you consider that fusion or do you just consider that you know growth in food and how we view food uh, i don't know I don't think if it wasn't made with the intent to fuse different right. meat, then yeah, it just I, yeah. is growing your menu, I would say. Right. Yeah, we're just growing like the awareness of food and how we consume it and how we sort of interact with it. It sort of fits into the local food movement in a way because you're using the local ingredients right. of the area yeah. along yeah. with stuff you get from far away because it's just not here. Yeah. So it kind of fits in there. Yeah, absolutely. So my last question has to do with your favorite sweets. I know um, <laughs> I, I'm i not usually a sweets person, but I wanted to ask this question because when you're thinking about food and childhood memories, and I thought about family because you guys are family and you're here, yeah. and the food of your childhood always carries with it memories. Yeah. And so I feel like sweets are the thing that, you know, when you're a child, you remember your favorite sweets. And so Not I when want... you're Indian. <laughs> <laughs> no sweets at all? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, there are tons of Indian sweets. Well, I, I think my favorite, favorite uh, memories of childhood would not be eating sweets as much as it would be eating savory food. Huh. Because savory is such a huge part of our food and our culture. You know, it's... it's so um, maybe that's why I don't he- I hear more about savory than sweet. And that's one of the reasons why I decided to ask about sweets. Yeah, <laughs> that's interesting. Possibly because, uh, I mean, my mom definitely makes a lot. Even when we were growing up, she'd make like custard and jelly and she'd make a bread pudding called double kamita, which is, um, or maybe just me personally, I was not really that into the sweet aspect of it as much as I was into the uh, other aspect of it. But there's definitely a lot of Indian sweets and they can be over the top sweet. We brought rice pudding today, which is right here. Um, Which is definitely a (laughs) classic thing. But I guess a, a street food dessert that I remember extremely fondly would be jalebi. It literally is um, sugar water that's deep fried. 
<laughs> How do you actually do that? <laughs> well, I don't know the recipe for it, but it's like some kind of really thin batter. It's like a syrupy kind of extremely thin batter that they put into a piping, you know, um, what is that called? Like a piping. Like uh, a piping bag or something? A piping bag. And then you have this boiling, rolling hot oil, and then you pipe it into the oil, and it makes these misshapen squirrels. And then you quickly kind of pick it up out of the oil, and it's just, it looks like a little round lattice, you know, circle. Um, and when you bite into it, it's just like sugar syrup coming <laughs> oozing out. Uh, and I, I do remember as a kid loving that. You know, you know culturally um, uh, and even religiously, uh, India's mother of all religions, where uh, eating, uh, signing off your food with a sweet is considered uh, almost uh, mandatory. <laughs> any wedding you attend, any religious function you attend, even if you visit somebody's house, uh, hospitality is very big in India. If you don't have the stomach or the appetite to eat a meal, at least have some sweet. You know, <laughs> uh, it's always there. So, and there are different varieties of su oh, sweets yeah. and varieties of sweets. There are uh, shops that are designated as sweet shops. They don't do any other business but sell sweets, yeah. and they're huge, yeah. and they're crowded. So, <laughs> that probably that explains uh, why India has a very high incidence of diabetes in it, because of this. Uh, right from childhood, you're eating sweets. It's not in the same sense. Well, now it's different. But when I was growing up, it wasn't so much about going to the store to buy like candy or to buy chocolates and stuff. It's more about going to the sweet shop where you have these different uh, sugar cheese and, you know, like this jalebi that I was talking about or um, uh, it's a very, very different uh, sweet experience. It's very mm. different. And any happy occasion, for example, like uh, if I was visiting a relative, I'll carry a sweet box with me. You know, you don't go empty handed. You know, you always yeah. take something, and that something is a sweet box. Mm -hmm. And right. uh, if if the let's say a wedding is announced, you know, the first thing you you tell your neighbors and your friends, oh, have some sweet. You know, my <laughs> daughter is getting married, my daughter is engaged, or my my son graduated. Every event is celebrated with a sweet. Sounds good to me. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys have a funny story to end the song. <laughs> funny story i'm sorry guys we have such awesome customers we don't have funny stories but i had a really interesting thing happen to me recently at the restaurant a huge group came in and the waitress got their order and came to me and then i started cooking the food in the middle of the cooking the food she comes to me very nonchalantly says customer on table 10 um said uh, no cumin in her food and <laughs> Literally, like, everybody in the kitchen fell off because we were like, w w what do you mean, no cumin? And she's like, oh, she's just such an allergic, so if you could just avoid some cumin. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, every single thing in the restaurant, including a water, has some cumin in it. And we went into a tailspin to try and figure out how we were going to sort of, you know, fix this situation. And she's with a huge group. And like I said, I mean, cumin is a huge part of Ra's al Hanu, which we use in every single thing. We've prepped chicken with cumin. We've got lamb prepped with cumin. And we have, uh, you know, I mean, it was, and it was a busy, busy, busy Friday night. And 
kind of, you know, put us in a, um, a super Did you tight. offer some greens? <laughs> <laughs> so it was really interesting. What we did was we basically took every single ingredient in the restaurant that did not have cumin on it and then put it together in a tagine. And we seasoned it with um, fresh oranges, salt, and honey. And it was awesome. Um, and she ate it, and she was happy. <laughs> Perfect. Mention at the beginning next time. Yes! (laughs) (laughs) Thank you guys so much for coming in. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. That was Anissa Wahid of Tara Kitchen in Schenectady in Troy, New York, and her father, Mohammed Wahid, of the Taj Mahal restaurant in Schenectady. This has been Food Friday Leftovers. I'm Ashley Kinsey. And I'm Dave Hopper. Be sure to check out Vox Pop Food Friday every Friday at 2 p.m. on WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Our producer is Jim Lavoulis. Our theme is Beach Disco by Dougie Wood. Food Friday Leftovers is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. And tune in next week to see what else we find in the fridge.